Today's episode of The Big Picture is brought to you by Bud Light. Did you know not all alcohol products are required to list their ingredients? That was news to me. Bud Light is changing the game. They believe that we deserve to know our beer's ingredients, so they put an ingredients label right there on their packaging. Bud Light, brewed with hops, barley, water, and rice. No corn syrup, no preservatives, and no artificial flavors. Find out what ingredients are in your beer. Bud Light, enjoy responsibly. AB Bud Light Beer, St. Louis, Missouri. I'm Sean Fennessy. And I'm Amanda Dobbins. And this is The Big Picture, a conversation show about the Oscars. Amanda, we are here in the waning days of the Oscar race. I hope everybody will stay tuned. After our conversation about the Oscars, I have an interview with the great composer Nicholas Bertel. I know you're a big fan, Amanda. Yes. He, of course, wrote the music for If Beale Street Could Talk, for which he is nominated, and also Vice, and also Moonlight, and a number of other great scores. But we're going to talk right now about British Oscars, the BAFTAs. They happened earlier this weekend. And they were interesting. Amanda, any reflections on the, the the big winners at the BAFTAs? Well, I would say that there were some, nothing was a total surprise, right? There were a few breaks from kind of what we see to be the established frontrunners at this point. Specifically, Olivia Colman won for Best Actress and Rachel Weisz won for Best Supporting Actress. Keynote there. Both lovely British women. They are indeed. <laughs> at, a, at a British show. And... We did talk, I think, last week about the idea that British people do tend to do this from time to time, though I think we should talk a little bit more about how frequently um, they favor their own and how much that is a predictor or not a predictor, as the case may be, for the real Oscars. It's fairly frequent. Yeah. There's always at least one film that I, I, I was looking back at sort of some acting award trends and I read that in 2015, Dev Patel won for his performance in Lion, mm-hmm. which is not, not an, a performance I recall winning very many awards stateside. <laughs> no. So, you know, British Oscars are going to British. You know, that's that's okay. That's certainly their right as a, as a body. You know, we've talked on previous episodes of the show about how there's a decent percentage of people who vote for the Baptists who also vote for the Oscars. So there are some lessons to take away from here. I'm a little dubious of Rachel Weisz's campaign. However, Best Supporting Actress historically, one of the most difficult to predict. And she is your queen, even though Olivia Coleman will be the queen. I think your yes. queen is Vice. Yes. In and, this movie. In this yeah, movie. I was quite taken with her. I'm quite taken with Rachel Weisz and pretty much everything she does. I am as well. She's quite charming. Very, very talented actress. Uh, I don't think that I don't think that the, the Oscar races in particular are changed by these two outcomes. But actress and particularly supporting actress, like I said, have been up in the air. I think Regina King not being nominated at the SAG Awards has created some doubt about who is really the front runner in that race. Um, Olivia Coleman's speech was wonderful. She is really charming, She's isn't really she? Funny, yeah, yeah. The, she kind of has this daffy, loving quality that is completely different from the energy that she brings to pretty much any performance I've seen of hers, but certainly in the favorite. Yeah, um, she's she's a really uh, a gifted real-life comedian. Yes. Um, <laughs> and is putting that on display. Let me ask you a question. This is kind of jam session territory, yeah. but there was a lot of noise around the presence of the royal family at the BAFTAs. Yes. I don't understand any of that stuff. Can you okay. explain it briefly? Well, so we should say that it was Prince William and Kate Middleton, a.k.a. the Duke and Duchess of Cambridge. So not the whole royal family. A.k.a. You make it sound like they're the stars of an action series. <laughs> they have a, there are like a lot of different titles. So th- that's kind of their official title, but okay. no one calls them that. Yes, they were there. They go every year. And they had an entrance that you can watch like on the official count of it's the Kensington Palace royal account. That's where they live. Wow. 
And it's their entrance into the auditorium and everyone is standing and it's dead silent. And it's the most (laughs) uncomfortable thing I have ever seen. Like no one is applauding, which would be one normal reaction. There is no music playing, which would be another normal reaction. So it's just a large auditorium of people standing up, looking kind of like politely confused. Viggo Mortensen is like very front in the frame, just being like, wow, hey, I'm here. And also so are some royal people. It's very strange. I don't know why they did this. Is pin drop silence a marker of British adulation? No, I was trying to think of, you know, other entrances that I've seen. Like, remember at the Olympics when London hosted the Olympics and they did that whole video with Daniel Craig as James Bond and the Queen? Yes. And then, like, she fake parachuted in. And the real came, queen came in and everyone applauded and there was like music. It's not like you hmm. have to sit there and be silent around a, a royal person. I mean, I don't know. I've never met any of them. Juliette Littman sat next to Princess Anne once at a Hamilton performance. And that's really all the experience I have. But I don't think Juliette had to be silent. If you were confronted with the Duke and Duchess of Cambridge, mm-hmm. would you hug them? No. Okay. I think you'd get but shot if you did Would that. you hug any British person? I wouldn't hug anybody. Right. So. Exactly. <laughs> uh, okay. There were a couple of other awards at, at the BAFTAs. We should probably talk about those a little bit. One, I think both of these awards kind of signal an inevitability, whereas Olivia Coleman and Rachel Weisz feel very trapped on the other side of the ocean. Mm-hmm. I think Rami Malek winning Best Actor is starting to crystallize that race, which is surprising. We, I feel like we've gone through the seven stages of grief with this, this race. You know, we for those of you who don't know about the rewatchables, we have a podcast in which we rewatch old movies and and evaluate them. We did a fairly new movie this week. We did a Star is Born. <laughs> have, you, have you heard of it? Uh, you may have heard of it. We've talked about it every week on this show. We'll talk about it later. Um, and in that conversation, we talked a little bit about Rami Malek sort of leaping ahead of not just Bradley Cooper, but even Christian Bale here. And the Rami Malek we have just happened. Do you think that this confirms? Well, Bohemian Rhapsody is technically a film about British people. Okay. So that's something to keep in mind. I think that it was nominated in several other kind of British forward categories. I like, I like how you're thinking. So I, you know, you got to think about Freddie Mercury as a person who is especially meaningful to that country and like Live Aid, we all know what that is, but you know, Live Aid is like the, most important thing that ever happened to most British people. I don't know. If you're British and listening to this, I'm sorry. Uh, a lot of blasphemy about the <laughs> yeah, Brits on this I really episode. like the British people. I do think he's the favorite still. I, I'm mystified by it, I guess. You know, actors like other, like actors like Capital A Act and they like big shows. Yeah. They all want to like be out there song and dance and some spangles and like it's our time. And you know, I get it. If, if I could do it, maybe it would be fun, too. So You mean if you could physically embody Freddie Mercury, you would do it? Well, I would want to sing. I wouldn't go halfway. Okay. And that's the other thing. We're not talking about this. He didn't sing. Mm-hmm. I just, let's 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 revisit this. He didn't sing. I think that you should have to sing to win an Oscar. That is just my take. You really blew the lid off this one. Yeah. Turns out he didn't sing. <laughs> uh, there was an, another inevitable sort of seeming award, which was, of course, Best Film, which went to Roma. Mm-hmm. And you and I were talking a bit before this podcast started about whether Roma's win is inevitable right now. And I think it is, and maybe you don't think it is, because there are so many award shows and there are so many Guild Awards. And the way that all of those award shows are publicized means we have way more awareness of what has won. And so we're able to track the race a lot more aggressively than we used to. Now, to your point, Roma hasn't won that many Best Picture awards. 
It was not eligible for the Golden Globes. Right. It won the Critics' Choice Award. Yes. It won this award. Yes. I believe it won the DGAs. You know, it feels like this is the direction we're moving in. It's the odds-on Vegas favorite. In years past, I, you know, we talked specifically before the show about what was happening last year with The Shape of Water. And it felt like it was Guillermo del Toro's time and The Shape of Water was going to win. And there was the sort of problematic movie that could upset it, which was Three Billboards. Yes. And then there was the, the sort of series of hopefuls that were far less likely to win. Get Out, Dunkirk, Phantom Thread, Lady Bird. Number of movies that we loved. The internet's favorites. The internet's favorites. Yeah. And this year is somewhat similar. Now, I don't. I think that Roma is is a bigger achievement than The Shape of Water personally, but they have a lot in common. And then the sort of problematic fave is Green Book. And to, to a lesser extent, Bohemian Rhapsody. Yes. Yeah, you got two for the price of one. Yes. And then we've got these other movies. We've got Black Panther. We've got Black Klansman. We've got A Star is Born. That, boy, it sure would be wonderful on the at, at the strike of 11.01 p.m. on Sunday, February 24th, when we can all just say, ah, oh, they did it. They did it right. We got something we wanted. Do you think that Roma is as inevitable as The Shape of Water was one year ago? I do not think it is as inevitable. I still think it is the front runner. If we were doing our ballots today, I would pick Roma. I think probably when we do our ballots, I will pick Roma. It has kind of the most cross-guild support, as you noted. It does have that shape of water feeling of industry people and people are like, wow, what a an achievement. What a this shows what movies can do technically and emotionally. And, you know, I know I was doing that in a sarcastic voice because that's how I felt about the shape of water, but I echo your sentiment. I thought Roma was unbelievable and it was a really special movie experience for me. So In that sense, yeah, I guess it does have Shape of Water. I just really keep going back to how spread out all of the awards this season have been. It has not been a horse race between two movies, which last year it was Shape of Water with three billboards, pretty much. And then we all talked a lot about Get Out. We kind of like tried to secret that into existence. Yeah, and three billboards, we should say, won at the BAFTAs last year. And even though three billboards is theoretically a movie about America, it was written and directed by Martin McDonough, who is British. Exactly. So... You know, this stuff is increasingly difficult to predict based on previous awards. Right. I think also the fact that you kind of have two spoilers in Green Book and Bohemian Rhapsody changes the mathematics in terms of the preferential ballot. I think, I don't know, it's similar. And again, I think it'll probably be Roma, but I'm more confused than I usually am at this point in the Oscar season. I am too. We've got 10 more days and maybe two and a half more episodes of this show to figure it Mm -hmm. all out. Um, I did want to note that the BAFTAs, the telecast was fine. The awards are good. And not necessarily the way that they give them out, but the categories that they have. I thought you were literally talking about the actual physical trophy. No, the, the trophy which is Which I find odd. alarming. Yes, the trophy is a, is a <laughs> sort of Shakespearean mask. Yes, or it's a Greek the drama mask. mask yeah. The drama mask. Um, and uh, yeah, to hold that would is a bit uh, eyes wide shut. Yes. So I, I'm, not in, I'm not in favor of that. What do you think is the best shaped award? That's a great question. Across all awards. It's definitely the Oscar. You think so? Yeah, streamlined, but powerful. Very phallic. Well, you know, I mean, it's it's literally an award about Hollywood. Yep. So at some point you got to. Okay, so you're going Oscar. Yeah. I'm going, um, sure, Oscar. That sounds fine. Emmys are too spiky. I would be worried about my, like, poking my eye out. There's something profound about an Emmy, though. You put an Emmy on a shelf, it's like, that thing is in charge. That giant ball. It looks like a Christmas ornament. Okay. Um... What I meant to say about the BAFTAs was that the awards themselves, the categories that they give out, 
are pretty interesting. Um, the outstanding debut by a British writer, director, or producer is a cool category. Agree. That would be. Wouldn't it be great if we could just put Bo Burnham in that category this year, and particularly Bradley Cooper? There were a couple of really cool. I think John Krasinski might find his way into there. You know, there's a few people that would do well in that category. Don't you think? I agree. So why don't they do it? I don't know. I like. I appreciate that British people seem to take pride in their industry. Me too. In a way that the Oscars somehow don't seem to be able to communicate, even though they make us watch so many montages. We're going to talk about that a little bit. Yeah. Um, the other category is similar to this one, which is Rising Star, which is mm-hmm. a, a category that I lobbied for on TheRinger.com like three months ago. This is just just such so obvious. Like just just put more young, interesting, exciting people on the conveyor belt to stardom. This is the way to do it, to put them in front of 30 million people on a TV show, right? Counterpoint? Yeah. Best new artist at the Grammys. <laughs> yeah. Which is like the most laughable award across any awards show. I mean, and part of that is because the Grammys are also laughable and the eligibility periods make no sense and what's new to someone is, you know, not new to someone else, especially Who? in music. Did Dua Lipa win last night? Yes. Okay, so Dua Lipa has like 3 million followers on Twitter. Yeah. The idea of her as a best new artist is insane. Right, but every year we say that. Yeah, that's true. Okay, so you're saying the Baptist shouldn't... No, 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 but this is a nice award. This is best case because okay. it was Letitia Wright. It was Letitia Wright. And that's fantastic. That was very cool. Uh, Letitia Wright also has been acting for like four or five years, but what? Right. nevertheless. You know, it's, at least they say rising instead of new. Oh, good. Good designation. That's smart. Okay, so we'll do that. Um, Any other reflections on the BAFTAs before we move on to our next segment? I just really felt all of the royal stuff was weird. Just again, besides the entrance, the Letitia Wright reminded me of this because you can also on the Twitter account watch Prince William and Kate Middleton having awkward conversations with all the winners. And there's a video of Prince William and Letitia Wright talking and doing their best to connect. And he's very excited. And she just is she's playing along, but it's so weird. It's very strange. Let's play a quick game. Yeah. What was Kate Middleton's favorite film of 2018? I really have no idea. You have to make a guess. Um, you think it was Bumblebee? No. <laughs> I mean, I don't really think they have seen that many movies. Spider-Verse, right? So, yeah, it's definitely Spider-Verse. Spider-verse rules. Have you heard of it, Spider-Verse? Yeah, I have. It's so awesome. That's great. <laughs> what about William's favorite film? Probably Mission Impossible. Yeah, hell yeah. Yeah, great. which respect. Yeah, okay, great. Let's go to our next segment, which is called Stock Up, Stock Down. If it goes bust, you can make 10 to 1, even 20 to 1 return, and it's already slowly going bust. Okay, Amanda, I'm sure that listeners of this podcast are going to tell us to shut the hell up as soon as I say what the subject of this stock up, stock down is, but it's Bradley Cooper, and there's a very good reason for that. Bradley Cooper was back in the news, and his campaign continues apace. He had two very vocal, I don't, I, I guess, defenders? come forward for him in the last few days? Campaigners. Because that's what it is. They have finally decided that they are willing to campaign for an Oscar. Months too late. It happened too late. It's been a very curious situation. The first, of course, on Friday afternoon, Deadline.com published, I guess you could call it an essay. I'm not (laughs) sure what the word for what was written exactly is. But a a sort of a a defense, a a full-throated appreciation of A Star is Born by Sean Penn. Sean Penn, of course, is an actor, a filmmaker, an activist, <laughs> an author. Okay. Though you might not Among feel that based on some of the words that are written in this piece. Uh, I would highly encourage anyone listening to this show to seek out those words. Uh, they are quite a tangle. And they are extremely 
red-blooded masculine about a movie that I think does a nice job of untangling some of those ideas of masculinity. So I found Sean Penn's notes on the movie to be a little bit strange and a little bit misguided. I didn't point out to you that there is a very interesting segment in Sean Penn's WTF interview from March of 2018 in which he has clearly just recently seen a cut of Star is Born. And he's technically not allowed to talk about it, but he is really singing its praises to the absolute hilt. And when I heard that, that was the moment when I was like, this movie may be a disaster. (laughs) A couple of episodes later, maybe a couple of episodes before, Jennifer Lawrence did the same thing on WTF. She said, I saw a cut of A Star is Born. Bradley is a genius. This movie is going to change everything. And I thought that that was odd too. Those are two people whose judgment I don't always trust, if I'm being honest. However, Star is Born came along. Obviously, we fell in love with it. Check out the rewatchables, yada, yada, yada. Come to find out, well, after Bradley Cooper has not been nominated for Best Director, Sean Penn has come forward with this essay. What was your instant reaction to the publication of that essay? I mean, instant reaction is what is happening and what have I done <laughs> to somehow be in this timeline and narrative? Yes. What else do you and Sean Penn have in common? <laughs> it's like, I just, you know, I have a couple things. The number one, and I already alluded to this, is I just cannot believe how much they have screwed up this Oscar campaign. And I think a lot of this, I don't want to place blame, but mistakes were made. And we know that Bradley Cooper is not the most press-forward actor or director. He doesn't love doing it. It was featured in the New York Times. It has been featured in pretty much every interview that he's ever done, begrudgingly. Watch the Graham Norton clip from this year as well, where he just honestly looks frozen. It's It's not his area of expertise. And that's fine, but that's not how you win an Oscar. And they clearly decided to do as little as possible and let the movie speak for itself. And then after the Oscar nominations, when Bradley Cooper was snubbed from Best Director, they realized that was a mistake. And so now they're putting him in an interview with Oprah. They're putting him on the Today Show. He's out and about. And they're also apparently calling friends in this case. We can't confirm this. This is speculation. That's speculation. That's true. But I would guess that it's not unrelated. I think that there, it's completely plausible that Sean Penn, who I noted a, a year ago was stepping out for this movie, just sort of felt offended. Sean Penn's relationship to the Oscars is also quite fraught and interesting. The last time I remember him on the Oscars telecast, I believe he was giving Best Picture to Birdman and making a joke about the border. You may recall that in 2015. Anyhow, uh, I the other person who came forward was Paul Schrader, my problematic fave. I love Paul Schrader. He's nominated this year for Best Original Screenplay. He also wrote, I guess, an email to IndieWire? Yes. In which he clarified that he felt that the best director of 2018 was by far Bradley Cooper, in part because he helped Lady Gaga transform into Allie and got an astonishing performance from her. Now, I think you and I agree with that. Yes. I don't know if anyone else watched the Grammys on Sunday night, but Lady Gaga's performance of Shallow confirms the vision that Bradley Cooper had for her and the type of performance that he was able to get out of Lady Gaga that is perhaps different than what she would do when left to her own devices. Yeah, I, you know, I noted last night that I thought that this reminded me a lot of the three or four years that Lady Gaga was having before this movie came along, which was three or four years of her career that I was not super interested in, except for when she was singing Father John Misty songs, but that's neither here nor there. (laughs) Uh, Nevertheless, Paul Schrader's essay I thought was a nice gesture and I had heard him talk in the past about Lady Gaga's performance apparently he was very fawning of her at the Oscars luncheon a few weeks ago and he approached her and just was really taken with her and one of the things that he cited was he had worked on a film in the 80s with Joan Jett 
And he attempted to do a similar transformation with Joan Jett to make her into an Oscar caliber actress and felt he didn't succeed. And he took the blame for that. And he said, it's the director's responsibility to make that performance work in a movie. And, you know, I thought that this was, I don't know how strategically campaigned all this was. It's kind of hard for me to say. Like, I think if you're, you're probably wise to be cynical about the way that everything unfolds in award season, because it is highly orchestrated, but also you and I really admire A Star is Born, and I think a lot of Bradley's peers really admire A Star is Born. That's true. I just, especially with the timing, I don't think it's unconnected. Yeah. And you're right that it may just be in the ether that this is a performance and a film that's been overlooked. And so people with the means to call up reporters have decided to do that. I will say that the the two sudden defenders of A Star is Born being Sean Penn and Paul Schrader— just not the white knights that I personally was looking for. <laughs> it just doesn't really speak to like my audience or how I connect to the film. I don't know that it rounds out the qualities of the movie that we want Academy voters to react to, but maybe I'm wrong. I can't get out of my head the idea of Sean Penn being held back by several police officers and saying, is that my Bradley in there? <laughs> I feel I can't. I feel like I'm going to dream about that. Um, I understand that Sean Penn and Paul Schrader are perhaps not your. The only two people being Sean Penn and Paul Schrader is well, bizarre. And, well, sure. and the cast of the rewatchables, yes, among others. That's true. Um, <laughs> wow. It, it's a very interesting time because, and you noted the Grammys last night. I mean, Shallow did win a Grammy. Did it win two Grammys? Yes. It won two Grammys. And now maybe Bradley Cooper can EGOT, which is something we should consider. Though he may not win any Oscars this year, so right. it might be a while. Yeah. The I, idea of Bradley Cooper having a Grammy before an Oscar is heart-wrenching. I am curious how the shallow of it all at the Grammys will affect the shallow of it all at the Oscars. How do you mean? Well, Sean, it was not a good performance. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> it just was not a good performance. I see. I thought you meant and, in winning at the Grammys. Well, you mean just Lady also, Gaga in the cat suit doing the thing. Yeah, but and then also it being so prominent and this was this was very sad, but Lady Gaga in her acceptance speech for the kind of second televised award that Shala won, she started off a portion of her speech by saying, in case I don't get to say this again, yeah, which reflects the knowledge that perhaps she will not be winning any more awards. I, I actually think that that was smart and will kind of cut to Academy voters' hearts and she will at least win for best song. But you never know, especially because it's won so many awards already. They might be like, eh, whatever. They took care of it. Oscar voting opens today. So if you're listening to this show and you love Shallow, perhaps vote for Shallow. Yeah. If, you, if you like all the stars and you want to reward Kendrick Lamar, you can do that too. Mm-hmm. Um, what else? Anything else about the press blitz that's happening around Star is Born right now? Where's the love for Sam Elliott? I feel like that's just baked into the industry. He's probably the best chance for an upset, right? I don't know. I guess so. Don't you think? At the, the Oscars luncheon, Glenn Close was apparently going around referring to him as her fictional husband or something. Or Same. Like, yeah. Same, I mean, Glenn. You know, I, I think that everyone is really taken by him in the same way that you are. So I don't know that they need to do the extra push. I mean, the fact that he got nominated means that people are taking him seriously. Something really funny is happening right now with Sam Elliott, which is that he is the star of a movie that came out on Friday. And so he is doing press for this movie. He is literally the star of this movie. Sam Elliott is not the star of very many movies at this stage of his career. The name of the movie is The Man Who Killed Hitler and Then the Bigfoot. (laughs) (laughs) Which, you know, I think says a lot. It's it's more knowing than that title may indicate. But uh, (laughs) this is really how Sam Elliott is spending a lot of his time is talking about this movie and also 
his performance as Jackson Maine's brother. So in conclusion, support Sam Elliott. Support a star is born. It's very good. It is very good. Would you say it's stock up or stock down for Bradley right now? <sighs> I really don't know because this press blitz has not had its attendant effect on me, mm-hmm. but you don't have a vote, but I don't have a vote. And also I liked the movie. Mm-hmm. So maybe all the people who are not responding to the movie will then respond to this fakery. Yeah. I mean, I think older white men yeah. consist of a huge portion of the Academy voters. Sean Penn and Paul Schrader just happen to be a couple of old white guys. Yeah. So it could be savvy strategy. We will see. We're going to move to another topic in stock up, stock down which is not a film or an actor or an actress or a director, production designer. It is the telecast of the Oscars. Dun, dun, dun. Today we learned the four categories that the Academy will not be showing us on the telecast. Those categories are cinematography, which was speculated upon and has been confirmed, film editing, live action short, and the category of makeup and hairstyling. Now, it's notable that you can't make a movie without cinematography or editing, so... That's interesting that we won't be seeing that on the Oscars telecast. What do you make of the choice to not put these four categories on television, Amanda? I would also just argue that you don't want to see a movie without makeup and hairstyling. But anyway, mm. this is a mistake. We're both agreed. This is a mistake. Huge mistake. Yeah, this is a this is a mistake. And I think that you and I possibly differ on the goal, kind of like the reasons for doing this, which is to make, say, a more efficient Oscars telecast or really to reimagine what the Oscars should be in 2019. But the way that they are doing it by kind of randomly cutting four categories from the Oscars is lame and unfair and is not the spirit of the show or does not understand why people tune in, which is to watch people win awards and give speeches. And it just kind of also... This show already feels terrible. You know, it's gone wrong every which way that it can go wrong. We haven't even watched it yet. And it's just another, like, this is a bummer. This feels gross. It's just tone deaf. The reaction was instantaneously negative to these details that were revealed. It's been cited over and over again that John Bailey, the current president of Ampus, is a cinematographer. So, you know, there's some speculation that maybe because he's a cinematographer, he's trying to seem like the bigger man by moving his category off of the telecast. That's pretty cynical, though this whole thing is pretty cynical. So that's certainly in play. Um, you know, you are not a huge fan of short films, Amanda. That's so is that rude. fair okay. to say? That it was an unpublished private take <laughs> that you just made public. And that also is not the correct representation. I think what you said to me verbatim was kill all short films. <laughs> is that right? <laughs> no. Okay. No. Okay. I just said, I think this was after, you know, trying to do my the first round of my ballot and being like, I don't know what's going on. The the thing that I said to you was there is some sort of argument where if you put all the short films together, it is a slightly different product than a feature film. And if you were like, okay, we will award these at a different ceremony, we'll do different awards. Uh, you know, obviously short films and feature films are connected. They use the same skills and people who make short films often develop into feature films, but it's not as plain mean-spirited as just being like, well, sorry, you edited this movie and saved it and you get your award during commercial break. Yeah, makeup and hairstyling, for example, like there is no vice without makeup and hairstyling. You just can't make that movie. It can't happen. And to shunt that to the side is strange. Now, there are some details here that are kind of interesting to go through, which is they say that we will be able to see the acceptance speeches later in the telecast. I'm not totally sure how that will work. Maybe in between or going out to commercial, they'll show us 
someone receiving an award and thanking people for 30 seconds or something. I'm not totally sure how they'll maneuver that. They're also saying, hey, watch this show on our live stream because we have entered the 21st century at the Oscars and we will now have a worldwide live stream like every other thing that we consume. I, I, do you think many people will be watching the Oscars on a live stream? I guess that does help with the sort of worldwide audience. I think more people will than would have five years ago. Mm-hmm. And as soon as you asked me that, I was thinking about how I watched the nominations this year on a live stream, which I, until three or four years ago, it was on Good Morning America. And now we we are conditioned to that. Mm-hmm. I think it was also, and this is kind of like an awards nerd deep cut, but um, the real VMA heads know that the best camera is are the reaction cameras that are live streams throughout the VMAs. Mm. So... There is a subset of people who is used to this, and there are so many cord cutters. So you think we'll have an additional production, like a a new way of seeing the show on the live stream that we won't see on the telecast? No, I just think that there are many people who already don't have networks or don't have cable subscriptions and who are used to watching things on their computers. Like, definitely everyone under 30 will be watching this on their computers, or they'll go to a party. But a lot of people do, so it doesn't seem that far-fetched, and I think in some ways is the Academy catching up with the many different ways that people do watch TV shows. That doesn't bug me as much. The fact that people are being shunted to just the live cast, it's rude. I mean, this is just like rude. It's exclusionary. It's like being picked last in elementary school. And it is definitely negates the spirit of the awards, which are to celebrate people instead of making people feel bad. I have a lot more to say about that, but let's just underline a few more aspects of how this was decided and and what it will mean for the future. So the four categories, according to The Hollywood Reporter, that are getting the abbreviated treatment this year will be guaranteed a regular spot on the 2020 broadcast. And according to several sources, the reporter says, a video demonstration of what this new format will look like was shown to the various branches. It is said to have included most of the presentation minus the winner's walk to the stage. The goal, they were told, was also to include the spirit of each winner's acceptance speech, although the speeches could be edited if they turn into a long list of thank yous. I don't know what that means. There's one other note of cynicism here that I have to point out that I saw Mark Harris pointed out on Twitter, which is that there's not a single Disney film <laughs> in any of these four categories Incredible. that has been nominated. And that feels a little bit dubious in terms of how they made some selections about what should be on TV and what should not. What do you think about that? I mean, I always like a conspiracy theory, and mm-hmm. I'm sure it's not unrelated. And again, it just underlines these are arbitrary at best, and it's not the way to improve the show. There are ways to improve the show. This isn't it. This is all in an effort to get to three hours, which who cares? Like, that's arbitrary. No, no, no. Hot take. That's a good goal. That's a good goal. Time limits are good. There is no reason for this show to be four hours long. There's just not. It's certainly harder to make it three hours. I understand that live shows bloat and people talk and things don't go as planned. But the goal of keeping it concise and clear is admirable. And more people should do it, not just in live broadcasts, but across all mediums, film, television, music, writing, phone calls to me, whatever. (laughs) (laughs) We will never, we will just never agree on this. Well, There there are two contingents. There are two contingents. There is the keep the Oscars as long as it needs to be because who cares that happens once a year and we've organized an entire podcast around it. And then there is you, militant (laughs) zealot that you are insistent upon a time frame on something that is creative. But like, what? how long does it need to be? That's the whole segment. There's so much stuff in the Oscars that doesn't need to be there. One montage is amazing. 
two montages, well edited, well chosen, fantastic. Freaking 18, no thank you. Let the nice makeup person walk to the stage in front of everybody else. I don't agree with how they're making the cuts. And I think it's really unfair. And I think that it suggests a misplaced priority on the part of the Academy or the producers or ABC, who could know. But I think the idea of making the show more watchable is not only good, like, Lord, they need it because no one else is going to want to watch it otherwise. Can, can I can I yeah. disagree with you just a little bit? Yeah. I understand that uh, I think widely people think that the montages are a big waste of time. Yeah. As a young person, eight, nine, ten-year-old Sean, picture him, lovely mm-hmm. child, really great kid. Mm-hmm. He's got big dreams, big aspirations. All he wants to do is watch movies. When you see those montages, when you're eight, nine, ten years old, and even when you're 25 or 45, you don't know everything about film history. So when you see North by Northwest in a montage about great Cary Grant performances, mm-hmm. or you see, I don't know, Casablanca about great romances, it indicates that there is a wider film history. And that is definitely the feeling that the Oscars are trying to give you with those montages. Now, there's definitely overkill. There's far too many. Some of the ideas are too specific or too weird. But I think that there is value in those. I agree with you. And I think the point is just that they're clearly choosing montages over awards. And it, I'm concerned that they will go too far in the other direction. I see what you're saying. There are already too many. I'm thinking a lot about the Grammys because we just watched them and they were four hours and they were terrible. They were really bad. And there was just so much time filling and long performances and tributes to people who weren't nominated. You know, I think they presented maybe eight awards over the course of four hours. And it was just... A lot of, there was like a Jennifer Lopez Motown tribute. Okay, I love Jennifer Lopez, truly. I love Motown, truly. It made no sense. It went on forever. That was bad. And this was also in a year when many of the biggest and most famous names refused to show up to the Grammys. So they were clearly filling time by programming mediocre at best performances that no one really cares about. Yeah, I mean, the Grammys are a different, I think they're a different proposition in large part because they... 20 years ago, decided to just be a concert. And it's just a different sort of formulation. You know, the, the kind of show that the Grammys wants to have is, is actually only obsessed with the past. One of the biggest problems with it is that it has no sense of, of modern music. It, it, you know, Casey Musgraves won Best Album last night. That's great. We all love Casey Musgraves. I think a lot of people who are real Casey Musgraves fans felt similarly to the way that people watching the Oscars do, which is like, she should have won this for the last record three years ago and not this cycle. They're always kind of a step behind. At least the young person won and a woman won, which was great. But that is not really an award show that is about awards. It's an award show that is about performances and it is about sort of the pageantry of performance. The Oscars takes itself a little bit more seriously. And part of the reason that it takes itself more seriously is it says the act of making movies is a big part of the proposition of this show. And it deserves to be understood. And that's why we give out best visual effects and production design and sound editing. These are small pieces of a puzzle that come together to form this beautiful tapestry. And when you start taking that stuff away, you start denigrating the idea of this show. And that mostly only offends people like you and me who are kind of interested in some of these bigger ideas. But it does create a sense of understanding around what this award show is supposed to be about. So if you're just obsessed with getting down to three hours and only getting in the 16 awards that people really care about, and that's it, I don't really know what the point of the show is. Does that make sense? Yes. Like, just watch the Critics' Choice Awards. Well, but it's the Oscars. I mean, you know, like, they do have <laughs> But that's have what the, the producers are saying. That's well, why they're like, you got to watch me, because we're the Oscars. But if you're not the Oscars anymore, then you're not. 
Yes, but what does like not the Oscars mean? Because you're not airing every category or because no one cares? It just depends on, it, it, it says one thing is more valuable than another. And that's historically now what it's been about. Some of the things that we have criticized it for over the years, like it wasn't a problem when Titanic won and 55 million people watched the show and they also gave out best live action short. It was fine. It was. It, it's much more about this anxiety about the place of two things. One, movies in our culture, which is obviously my obsession. And two, the nature of live events and award shows, which is something you've pointed right. out a lot. Well, you know, I think the thing is that 20 years ago, they didn't have to make a distinction. They could just be the Oscars because you had four networks and then some cable stuff and everybody watched them and we still all tuned into live events. And I've said this a million times. I'm sorry for repeating myself. The way that we watch television and movies has changed dramatically, even in the last two years, even in the last year, the way that we respond to live events and just kind of what we should be watching, what's important, what is the center of the culture has really changed, mostly because the way that people consume any sort of culture has changed. And so they used to be able to get away with kind of doing whatever they wanted because it was the Oscars and everybody watches the Oscars. And now they are having to make some decisions about what the Oscars are, which they have never had to before. I don't mind that they're trying to make it into a watchable show because it is a show as much as it is an institution. It's not like nobody, you know what nobody actually cares about is the Academy with all respect to the Academy and nobody like the traditions and the history and what this august body does for the industry is completely impenetrable to like even you and me, really Definitely. anyone watching. Yeah. And so it's all a secret of, society. Yeah. And so all of the criticisms of the changes in that regard of being like, this is not what the Academy has done. I, you know, I, I side with the producers on that. But I agree with you that cutting the lesser categories is a worrying decision of being like, well, the Oscars are going to be more about popularity or stars or... I, I think the problem is they don't know what the Oscars are. That's the thing is right. that they're kind of much like the popular Oscar thing where they kind of floated it and then took it back and we don't even know whether it's still happening. They're like, well, maybe we'll cut five categories, but we might not. And we don't know which ones and it'll change every year. They're just kind of stumbling around in the dark instead of making some actual decisions of here's what the Oscars are in 2019 in the streaming age. And they need someone who can make those decisions. It's hard. I'm not in charge and I don't have all the answers, but the waffling confused nature of it all is poss is the biggest problem in my perspective from my perspective. Let's contextualize this a little bit. Last year 26.5 million people watched the show. Yeah. That's the lowest ever. I think it was a 12% drop in the previous year's ratings. So if we forecast, let's say the ratings are down again this year. Mm -hmm. I think they might be up a little bit. People have pushed back on that and said that's not not the case. Everything has been down. The Globes were down. The Super Bowl was down. Everybody thinks they're going to be down. I think they are going to be down. So they may be down. I think that A Star is Born and Black Panther and a number of more successful films in the mix this year indicate they might be up. I could be wrong. Let's say I'm wrong. Let's say it's 23 million. That's a disaster, right? That's down. They've made all these changes. They've cut it to three hours. They cut the categories. They essentially whittled it down to, to within an inch of its life. Then what do you do? Do you try to make it a two-hour show? Do you announce that The Rock is going to host in April hmm. and then let 11 months go by before he does host? Because that is what was speculated last week. The Rock was actually interviewed by The Hollywood Reporter about what he would have done if he were to be the host of this show. I love The Rock. I'm not sure that The Rock necessarily would have changed the complexion of Oscar history. Yeah. But what do you do? If, if they're down, do you cut more awards? Do you make it just awards about Avengers? How, how do you get people interested in this show? 
Well, I think you do have to recalibrate. And this is what I was talking about of like, they need to make some hard decisions about what the Oscars are and who they are are going forward because you're never going to get 55 million people again. You're just not. That's just... I agree with that. That's not They're how, never going to get 40 million people again. Right. Yeah. And it's probably going to be down. And I think this is true of television, of movies, of what we do, frankly, of appealing to the broadest swath possible of people doesn't really work anymore. You need committed, passionate, obsessed specific fan bases and audiences. That may have been informed by your time working at The Ringer, which yeah, is exactly well, what we do. We yeah, are serving no, think, you know, that's smart true. niche audience as much as possible and giving them as much as we can about the things that we're passionate about. That's true. But the Oscars used to be a thing that 50 million people watched. Well, so did a lot of things. So did regular television. So did regular but movies. That stuff is so did, dying. So yes. does that mean the Oscars are dying? Is it too strong a statement to say, in the year of our Lord 2019, the year in which we launched this damn show, mm-hmm. that this institution is dying? I guess we can wait until February 25th to, yeah. to say that for sure. I would also, I think it's it's sick. It's sick. Okay. It's not doing well. Okay. I think that it can be turned around. I th- okay. I think it will look different than it did in 1999. And I do not think that the current changes being made suggest a, a healthy, robust future for the Oscars. But, you know, maybe maybe someone will figure something out. Maybe someone will. Uh, our colleague Brian Curtis has this axiomatic phrase that he uses all the time, which is that the NFL ratings will not affect your life. And he uses it anytime there is a report about the ratings of any kind of institution that we follow closely. I don't really agree with that axiom because this is a real-time example of if you're interested in the Oscars, the ratings of the Oscars are influencing the shape of the show. So it will be interesting to see what happens. Also, how quickly they kind of usher everyone off the stage after their wins. That's the other thing that is a little bit undiscussed here is the acceptance speeches are the reason to have the Oscars. Mm-hmm. That Those are the real moments of the award. The 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 Sally Field, you like me, you really like me. The J- Jennifer Lawrence, like being completely unprepared and emotional about her win. Julia Roberts's win for Aaron Brockovich. These are the Moonlight La La Land snafu. Mm-hmm. Where would we be if we had to get in under a, a 1059 to get that award out into the world. That would have been a disaster. The sort of unpredictability and the human drama is the point of the show. And they're making an attempt to quarantine that. And I'm against it. That's my that's my last word on it. I did think that the reports of how they instructed the nominees to be quiet at the Oscar show were pretty rude. I mean, they're Oscar. They're Oscar nominees. It's their moment. And you're right. It suggests a fundamental misunderstanding of the magic that is someone crying on stage and kind of really emoting in real time. That is why we watch it. But again, I agree with time limits. It should only be three hours. Figure it out. And if you can't figure out, hire someone who can. Okay, so maybe next time they'll hire a proctor who gives the SATs. Uh, Let's go to our next segment. It's the big race. Well, mama, look at me now. I'm a star. Amanda, we promised last week that we would talk about the best screenplay categories in the big race. And I must say, I didn't really study up too much before we got ready for this segment. <laughs> so I'm curious to hear some of your thoughts. Yeah. Uh, there, there are certainly some favorites in these categories. Of course, the Oscar splits the screenplay category into two different categories, one for best original screenplay and one for best adapted screenplay. This year, I'll just run, should I run through the nominees for original and then we'll start mm-hmm. from there? That sounds great. Okay, so the original nominees are the favorite Deborah Davis and Tony McNamara. First Reformed, the aforementioned problematic fave Paul Schrader, 
Green Book, the true fa- problematic fave, Brian Curry, Peter Farrelly, and Nick Vallelonga, Roma and Alfonso Cuaron, and Vice, Adam McKay. I think we should clarify, not our problematic fave, Ari Green Book. No, perhaps the Academies, though. Yes. Which is something we yes. will discuss here, I'm yeah. quite certain. Um, what is the favorite in this category right now? Wow, you just really set me up for that one, huh? It's the favorite! Yes, it is. I mentioned eight, nine, ten-year-old Sean Fennessy once upon a time. Okay. This was my favorite category as a young person. <laughs> You're such a nerd. Because, th- because this was the category that oh. often awarded the films that I liked best. Yes. And I, they often evince this sort of like, sure, the Oscars rewards Braveheart, but what I'm really into is quiz show. Stuff like that. Of course. And so I always looked to it as a kind of a bellwether for w- what's really, for lack of a better word, creative in Hollywood in the year of the Oscars. So the favorite, I think, kind of represents that. Mm-hmm. I think when we look back, we're going to say this is definitely one of the more inventive, thoughtful, less mechanical and campaign-heavy movies of the season. I do think the Green Book could upset this, though. And if that happens, it kind of flies in the face of all those warm feelings I'm talking about. What do you think? I agree with your description of this category. It is, and I... I I feel like we're at the point in the Oscar season where I have just said the same things over and over again. And God bless you people for listening. But this is the consolation prize category. It's that we'll give you this one mm-hmm. and then you don't win anything else. That's you know? right. Um, Jordan Peele won last year uh, for Get Out and then Get Out did not win any other major prizes. My queen, Sofia Coppola, back in 2004, I think, won for Lost in Translation. It is always the people who you who we love. And that also possibly says something about how you and I respond to movies and what we look for. It's a little bit of a cool kid category. Like let's I'll I'll list some some previous yeah. movies. You ready? So yeah. Callie Curry won for Thelma and Louise in 1992. That was really great. Uh, Jane Campion won for The Piano. Quentin Tarantino and Roger Avery won for Pulp Fiction. Joel and Ethan Cohen won for Fargo. Goodwill Hunting, of course. Ben mm-hmm. Affleck and Matt Damon's famous yeah. win. Julian Fellows for Gosford Park. That's one of your guys. Yeah. Um, you know, Charlie Kaufman has an Oscar because of Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. I could go on. The Hurt Locker, uh, Django Unchained, Her. Mm-hmm. These are movies that I think we have a lot of fun unpacking on podcasts that we think about that that certainly stick with me a lot of the time. But you're right. Almost never, almost never win. Sometimes you get Fargo or Shakespeare in Love in these categories. Yeah. And they win Best Picture. Yes. But it's it's not common. Yeah. What about Adapted? Adapted is a curious, is a curious group of movies this year. I'll read through them. Mm-hmm. The Ballad of Buster Scruggs by the Coen Brothers, which is based on the short stories All Gold Canyon by Jack London and The Gal Who Got Rattled by Stuart Edward White. Can't say I've read that one. Uh, Black Klansman, which is written by Spike Lee, David Rabinowitz, Charlie Wachtel, and Kevin Wilmot. It's based on the memoir Black Klansman by Ron Stallworth. Can You Ever Forgive Me, which is written by Nicole Holoff Center and Jeff Witte. The memoir is by Lee Israel. If Beale Street Could Talk by Barry Jenkins, based on the novel by James Baldwin. And A Star is Born, which is written by Bradley Cooper, Will Fetters, and Eric Roth, and based on the 1954 film by Moss Hart and the 1976 film written by Joan Didion, John Gregory Dunn, and Frank Pearson, with a story by Robert Carson and William A. Wellman. That is a mouthful. Mm-hmm. Original we, is easy to understand. This comes from the mind of imagination. This came out of its whole cloth. Mm-hmm. Adapted is interesting. Because it, I think when you, at first blush, you'd think, oh, there was a novel and it was a good novel and a writer had to sit down and translate that medium into the medium of the screenplay for our screen. That's not always what happens. And I don't feel like that's really what's happening here either. 
the Ballad of Buster Scruggs being nominated here is super weird because it's a six-segment film. Four of the segments are wholly original. Two of them are based on short stories. So this goes into the adapted category. Yeah, I mean, some of this is just kind of being rule nerds, right? Yeah, it's parliamentary. Yeah. Which is odd. Uh, Black Klansman, if you've read that book, you know that it is not to the letter how the film turned out. Correct. Um, Certainly in the third act. Uh, Can You Ever Forgive Me? It feels fairly close. Mm -hmm. If Beale Street Could Talk is very close, though though some things are changed in in the adaptation. And Star is Born is this stew of three previous films and a lot of influences and a lot of anxieties. What is the frontrunner here? I actually don't know. I think it's Black Klansman. Black Klansman. And I think that the thinking there is give Spike an Oscar. I think you're right. That's kind of disappointing. I actually would rather have him in Best Director than Best screen- Screenplay because this is not my favorite screenplay of Spike's. I agree with you. But again, I think even in this category, it's kind of just making sure that everybody gets a little love. And one, a weird Oscar is better than no Oscar is kind of my theory as it goes to Spike. I suppose that that's true. I think if Barry Jenkins had not won for Moonlight, there might be a little bit more attention Absolutely. on Beale Street. Yeah, but he did. I think he won in... He won in Screenplay. Screenplay, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I guess ago. it was adapted as well. Yes. Because he and Terrell Alvin McCraney won. A Star is Born? No. You know, I think it's a really good script. I think it's a really great script as well, but we also like that movie and they have not been paying attention to this movie at all. Yeah. And I, you know, I think it's an achievement because it really makes sense of a lot of different sources, some that are stronger than others. And it brings everything together and brings its own ideas and advances them, which is actually what adaptation is. I think it is actually a great adaptation. I I don't know that like the fine art of adapting is what's being rewarded in this category. It's true. And I wonder how much of the sort of the genius of that movie is oriented around those little touches that we talked about on the rewatchables, or if it's oriented around just the, I don't know, the big glamorous historical adaptation quality of it. It's a little hard to say. This, these are some pretty weird categories. If you look at um, the Writers Guild Awards, they're a little bit different. Well, they have different eligibility rules, as I understand it. They do, but th- their eligibility rules ultimately resulted in, I, I thought, a few more interesting touches. Okay. Um, in original screenplay in particular, Eighth Grade is nominated and A Quiet Place is nominated, which I'd like to get a look at the shooting script for A Quiet Place because there's so little dialogue. Yeah. I wonder how many pages it ran. It's pretty much the same for um, adapted screenplay with, with the rare exception that Black Panther finds its way into mm-hmm. that category. The Black Panther script is very good. Yes. And it's very strange that it's not here to me. Now, I realize it's a Marvel movie. That's a factor. I think also that idea of that is adapting, that is taking some source material and being like, okay, here, here's what I'm going to do with this and here's everything that I'm going to eject in to this. And, I, you know, I don't know that they are... I don't think that like people are comparing scripts and source material when thinking about these nominations. I think you're right. I mean, I think also Buster Scruggs and the name recognition of the Coen brothers taking the place of Black Panther in, in, in this race feels very pointed. There are more people in the WGA than there are writers who vote for the Oscars. A lot of the writers who vote for the Oscars are a little bit older, mm-hmm. been voting on this stuff for a long time. Maybe they're not as familiar with Ryan Coogler. Maybe they don't like what superhero movies have done to their award show. And that incursion leads to, you know, I, I love Buster Scruggs. I'm on the record about that. I'm not sure that it's the script accomplishment that Black Panther is in terms of what it had to accomplish in a fairly small frame. What, what other thoughts about the, this race? There are two women nominated in this entire race. 
Deborah Davis for the favorite, probably mm-hmm. going to win, and Nicole Hall of Center. It's nice to see Nicole Hall of Center. Uh-huh. I, you know. How classic that Nicole Hall of Center is not nominated for one of her own screenplays. Right. Her screenplay should be, should be in the Smithsonian. She is like one of the great writers of the last 25 years. Mm-hmm. So that's unfortunate. Right. But Good I mean, this there. is, it's nice for her to be there. It, only two women is disappointing and also indicative of a year where there weren't that many mm-hmm. films by women and the films that were by women were not taken as seriously, which is, I don't know. How, how many times can we talk about it? I know. I'm confused by the Writers Guild timing. The awards happen on the 17th which is at the tail end of the voting time for the Oscars themselves. So I suspect that this won't have a huge influence necessarily. And the absence of some of these movies too indicates that it doesn't matter as much as say the DGA, which is very influential on the outcome of the Oscars. Like I said, voting opens today. It's exciting. It's finally happening. And then we'll have a couple of episodes next week. We'll talk about some Oscar narratives, some broader themed ideas. And then we're going to do a big predictions blowout. We're going to go through all, t- we will go through all 24 categories, unlike the Academy on their own telecast. And we will say, this is what's going to win and not win. And I'm going to say to you, what do you think about uh, best animated short? I was going to say, even the shorts, we will discuss the shorts. Please do not listen to Sean about my short slander. Let me ask you a question. Will you be watching all of the shorts or will you just be going to goldderby.com and then making a choice? Can I be really honest with you? I was already looking on Gold Derby for any of this information and there's none to be had. Like if you try Googling short documentary or whatever, it's just a list of the films that no one is doing this work. So if you want to make your name as an Oscar blogger in 2019, I have got an assignment for you. I will say to the listeners out there, all five documentary shorts are now available online if you'd like to watch those. The animated shorts are a little bit more difficult to find. If you live in New York or LA, perhaps you can see them in a movie theater. If not, tough shit. Uh, (laughs) Amanda, this has been fun. I will see you next week on the Oscar show. Thanks, Sean. Now please stay tuned for my conversation with Nicholas Bertel, the Academy Award nominated composer. I'm absolutely delighted to be joined by Nicholas Bertel, who is Oscar nominated for If Beale Street Could Talk. Nick, thank you for coming in here today. Thank you so much for having me here. So, Nick, um, this is your second nomination after Moonlight, a film you also made with Barry Jenkins. I want to talk all about your work, but I'm always curious, especially with composers, the first time you remember hearing film music and what your relationship to film music was as a young person. So I have a very specific initial experience with with music and with film music, which is when I was five years old, I saw Chariots of Fire, and I was obsessed with the movie. And the theme, that theme in the score by Evangelis, uh, just took over for me. And so after watching it, we had this very old upright piano in our apartment on West End Avenue. And I, you know, you know, the theme, you know, I mean, even outside of the melody of it, you know, it just has that, you know, that sort of repetitive note. So I could do that. And I went over and I was like trying to figure it out. And I asked my mom, I was five. Okay. I was, I I was really into that theme. (laughs) And so, uh, and I asked my mom for piano lessons. So, um, so for me, film and music in so many ways, have, were, were connected from the very beginning. And did you become a person who was kind of obsessed with this? Because you're obviously a composer and not just for film scores. You've written other pieces yes. and you you work on all sorts of things. But specifically, did you have kind of your guys or your people that you followed in their careers? Uh, as far as like the composers and the music, you know, yeah. I mean, I think, you know, I grew up in the 80s and uh, there, you know, I just loved movies. I mean, there are so many movies that I was into, uh, you know, every, I mean, and the scores for for whatever the reason, you know, my my brain would just be 
attracted to the music and the movies. And I thought, you know, listening to Elmer Bernstein's score in Ghostbusters was as amazing to me as listening to Mozart's Jupiter Symphony or something, you know. And I I became a classical pianist. Um, so I, you know, was, you know, you know, just as into Mozart and Bach and Schumann and, you know, what have you. Um, but I, I, did, I never saw any difference between music in any genre or field. It was just, it's just music just happened to be in a film. And in a lot of ways, I think for me, um, I have always found music in a film to be many times even more powerful than when it's not in a film. There's something about that bizarre alchemy of music connecting with an image that does some, certainly does something to me. Um, and I think there is something inherent in that where, you know, when, when those things connect, like the music opens up something in the picture and the picture is doing the same thing. It's it's changing your perception of the music. Um, so yeah, I like there's there's a lot of pieces I like listening to even more in a movie than even outside of a movie. Interesting. Were you a dissector? Like, would you try to break down scores even at a young age the way that you did with Vangelis? Uh, oh yeah. And actually, what's interesting is film scores. Oftentimes, the sheet music doesn't get published. And this is something that's that's just interesting with, with film music. I think in general, which is that you know, like if I want to study a Beethoven symphony. If I want to understand Beethoven's Seventh Symphony, I can go buy the music. I can act, like look at every note in the whole symphony. If I want to study, you know, Danny Elfman's Beetlejuice score, um, you know, there are more composers who are publishing those things, but the full orchestral scores of, of a lot of film music it, are not available. Um, and I, it's you know it's maybe starting to change. I was going to say, has that changed at all in recent a years? A little bit, but it's few and far between, you know. And I and I I've always uh, I, I've had a little bit of sort of a private crusade, maybe of like feeling that that as an art form, um, those scores should be available to, your, to young composers. Are you know? yours published? Uh, I was able to publish um, uh, three pieces from Moonlight. Mm-hmm. Um, we published um, Little's Theme. Middle of the World, and uh, this piece, The Culmination, um, which is sort of a larger uh, orchestrated version of uh, the chef special, Q and Moonlight. Um, but uh, but I, th- I think, I mean, I would love to publish more, more of my music. <laughs> yeah, it's an interesting thing. I was going to wait to ask you about this because I want to yeah. know more about kind of your life and what got you here. But sure. middle, you saying Middle of the World makes me think of how that has become very quickly a kind of iconic film score. And what mm-hmm. is that like when you have worked on something very closely with Barry and that becomes a signature, and now I feel like I'm hearing it in places where it wasn't originally intended. And so it feels like it's in a commercial or it's just being used in sort of ambient ways, like these YouTube mixes, people are just dropping it in. What is that like for you, for something that you've made very specifically for something to kind of permeate into the world? It's really, I mean, I'm so honored. You know, getting an opportunity to score a film is already a very special, you know, privilege and opportunity. But I think that for you know for me and for Barry, I mean, when we were working on Moonlight, we cared so profoundly about the project, um, and I think that the the dream of any project is you want to share it, and you want people. You don't just want to share it; you want people to connect with it or to feel what you were feeling when you made it. Um, and I think the the further that journey goes, the more special it is. So, um, you know, if you had said to me four years ago um, that that music would have, you know, gone around the world in various ways, um, I, you know, I I don't even know if I would have believed that. Um, Because it's just, it's not even, you know, it's impossible to imagine those things happening. So let's go back a little bit. You obviously, it sounds like you were a prodigy. Maybe you probably wouldn't describe yourself that way, but you found, sounds like you were very gifted at a young age. And it's you pursued music, but you didn't. Did you, you studied music in college as well? 
So I yeah I was a I was a, a classical pianist and then I went to uh, I went to high school I grew up in Manhattan and then uh, we moved to Westport Connecticut when I was uh, thirteen so we lived in Westport when I was a uh, sort of for high school years and then I would commute into Juilliard pre college uh, which the Juilliard has a pre college program that I went to from when I was fourteen to eighteen um, to study you know piano performance harmony counterpoint you know, uh, uh, solfege, composition, sort of what have you. You know, I took organ lessons. I was really into the pipe organ. Wow. <laughs> Love the pipe organ. It's an amazing instrument. Um, and uh, in college, I, I knew in high school, or I started to get the sense that being a classical concert pianist wasn't the life, the thing for me. Um, what made you realize that? So, it, I mean, there's a lot of different questions I think I would ask myself. And um I was recently thinking about this quote from uh, – there's a book uh, called Genius about Richard Feynman, the physicist. And uh, there's a moment where he talks about um, – uh, or the author talks about how when Richard Feynman was at MIT, he was studying pure mathematics. And uh, one day, I think the professor was talking about some very abstruse point in, in you know, higher math. And Feynman you know, sort of raised his hand and was like – you know, why are, why are we learning this? And the professor said, if you have to ask, this might not be the place for you. Mm. <laughs> and, you know, I remember reading that in high school and thinking to myself, you know, if I have to—I'm asking myself all the time if I want to be a concert pianist. And I think it's—you know, that kind of an idea of, like, I think there are things that you never ask yourself that you just know that you're following. And I was asking myself all the time. So I think some of that played a role in me going, not going to a conservatory for college. Um, and in college, I studied psychology. That was my concentration. Um, and I ended up, uh, you know, in every psych class that I took, I ended up trying to find a way to explore neuromusicology about how the brain understands music. And Harvard was wonderful in the way that there were certain courses you could even sort of uh, request where uh, you could find a professor who was willing to just read research with you and you could meet them once a week and talk about it and write papers. Um, so, you know, I did that with neuromusic, for example. And, uh, you know, those were, those were you know, it, it was amazing just getting that chance to think about those ideas because for me, music is such a <clears throat> mysterious phenomenon. And uh, I think it's so, it's almost like so woven into our lives that we don't step back to think about how, <clears throat> how odd it is that, you know, there are these like, you know, air pressure changes these frequencies in the air that somehow connect with our ears. And then the connection of all those frequencies leads to very profound emotions that are very, even incredibly specific at times. And the, that's, you know, it's this huge alchemy that's happening with music. And I was just curious, like, what, you know, what is that? And no one really knows, which is the sort of the quick answer is I think, you know, we, we haven't reached a point where we really understand the brain very well. Um, so there's a lot of theories and ideas, but, um, but is that what yeah. drew you to studying that? Because it, you know, ultimately you didn't go to a conservatory, even though you were deeply interested in music and then you pulled music through into your academic studies and your higher learning. And then you come back to music ultimately, although you did do some things in between. Yes. Is there a part of you that when you were a teenager thought, I don't want to make this my life or this doesn't feel like a lifestyle that I would be happy in? I always dreamed of what, it would be like to be uh, a musician, actually, and and uh, to do that full time. Um, I think it was that growing up, you know, the idea, like I loved, I loved playing music. 
I loved listening to music. I loved studying music. I loved writing music. Um, but there's also something about, I think, the idea of what a composer is where, for example, you know, especially I think if you have a classical background, you know, you're you're confronted with these larger-than-life, almost superhuman figures right away. You know, ideas of people like a Mozart or a Beethoven, um, you know, they're, they're almost not human. They're so far beyond your conception of what's possible. So I never thought of myself as a composer. I was like, those are composers. I, you know, I just like music. Um, and it was really being, uh, it was really in college where um, two things happened. One thing was I joined a hip-hop band with some very dear friends of mine. We were an instrumental hip-hop band with six uh, uh, instrumentalists and then two rappers. So we played live. So you know, it was electric bass, drums, electric guitar. I was on keys and synthesizer, and I would write a lot of the music. Uh, we had a conga player. We had a DJ, and then we had the two rappers. Um, and I started writing music all the time. Like it, w- it became a daily habit where I would be studying audio production and making my own tracks and beats and really, you know, rabbit hole, fully immersed. And at the exact same time, um, a very dear friend of mine, Nick Lavelle, who tragically passed away a few years ago, um, approached me and said that he was making a $10,000 feature film while we were in college uh, called Domino One, and he wanted to know if I would try scoring it. And both of those things happening at basically exactly the same time um, led me on this path of just writing music because I loved it all the time. And, get, you know, working with Nick and getting to, like, experiment with, you know, looking at scenes and just trying to write stuff on my keyboard. And, you know, there were no rules. We just had so much fun with it. And that was really the moment where, for me, I was like, you know what? I I didn't want to be a concert pianist. It was an incredible training, and I love playing the piano. I mean, I play all the time. But I think the specificity of that life was something that that was what I wasn't drawn to. And more and more, I've come to that sort of feeling that so much of our lives is just like, how do you spend the hours of your day? But even at that time when you were working on that film, that didn't ultimately become your professional life after college, right? So I so what happened was my, the movie. I thought that that either our band was going to get signed. We were, I mean, we were very serious about the band. You okay. know, we were talking to labels and were you we, sort of the Scott Storch uh, of this band? I'm trying uh, to I'm trying, of, to, trying <laughs> to figure out what that's, your your comp is. That's that's pretty much what. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I wished I was the Scott. You know, I mean, yeah. I was, yeah. We, I mean, we were obsessed with like Chronic 2001, for example. You know, but um, no, I was um. You know, I thought the band was going to sign. We were very, very serious about it. We performed all over the Northeast. Um, our, our high point was we opened for Jurassic Five and Black Alicious. So that was like, that was our dream. We were in college right about the same time. We were yes. okay. Yeah. So exactly, you know, that, you know, what we were contemporary doing. on that. Yeah. We were in it, and then I thought, or and or I thought the movie might come out. You know, like oh, you know, we're going to find it's going to get released. Um, so unfortunately, at the time, neither of those things happened. Um, our band started to break up. And then uh, it became clear that the journey of the film would be very long, and we didn't really know where things were going. And just by total happenstance, I, I um, met someone who had gone to Harvard, who himself was a composer, who worked in finance. And he was like, you know, I was looking for a job. I wanted to live in New York. And um, he said, look, you know, we'll find something for you to do here. Um, he sort of kind of saw the different things I was doing, and that seemed interesting to him. And um, he kind of took a chance on me. So I, I ended up learning to trade currencies. And I would give, you know, I would still give concerts. I even gave concerts for, like, our investors. I would score all my friends' short films all the time. I would write, you know, telephone hold music. I would do anything that would come my way because I just wanted to be doing music. But, um, you know, I think our lives all take a sort of circuitous path sometimes. And 
I reached a point after, you know, after quite a few years where I realized I was, I was actually very unhappy and I wasn't um, following this idea that I think I had always thought I would of being a musician. And, you know, you give things time, you know, you, you, I think you have to be patient, but it was very clear that, you know, being a currency trader wasn't my dream in life. And uh, I quit my job and started making these pilgrimages out to Los Angeles to, you know, uh, find anyone who would have sit with and have a coffee with me. <laughs> what are those? I'm curious particularly about those early meetings and days where you're trying to yeah. string things together. You yeah. know, what? how do yeah. you pitch yourself as a composer? It's a good question. Uh, what would, you know, I I think it was... I would talk about you know the the projects I'd worked on. I would talk about you know my band or 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 this this film. I had examples of my music. You know, would you from, come with like mixtapes? I would. CDs? I, I, yeah, I had a CD. Okay. You know that I would have. And uh, what else? Like uh, you know, honestly, it was really you know looking for potential collaborators. Just saying if, and it wasn't even so much. Hey, are you looking for a composer? It was. Do you possibly know anyone? Who might know anybody? Who might know anyone? Who yeah. would sit down with me where I could possibly explore that? You know, because because it's it is it is a you know it's a vast world you know out here. And um, I had some very dear friends who would connect me with people, and it and it and it took a while because film music is its own universe. You know, it's a very specific um, you know a very specific community of of composers and orchestrators and engineers and and there really is this very focused industry um but sometimes it's hard to find your way to it um and for me in some ways actually i would say ascap uh, i'm part of ascap and they were really phenomenal at uh providing advice and resources and i did a i applied and did a um program called the ascap columbia workshop uh where they would um pair composers with uh you know, graduate students in their film program who were making their senior thesis film. And th- basically for 10 weeks, you would have weekly seminars and you would work closely with a, with a director. And then they would pay for an entire recording session with like players from the New York Philharmonic to come in. I mean, it was amazing. Wow. And, um, you know, I, I think I started just, you know, kind of trying to do anything. Like I would go to a lot of film festivals. That was something that I, that was very, helpful just to almost go through the motions of being in the industry like you know seeing what is the what is the lifeblood of this industry where is what where do things happen um so i had no specific game plan you know and all the while i was still thinking oh maybe domino one's going to come out one year yeah. <laughs> you know, we never knew so did you have a sort of the proverbial big break did you have a moment where you're like i'm this is what i'm going to do now at least for this time period when I quit my job, I said to myself, I mean, I knew this is what I wanted to do. Um, it wasn't a, let's see if this works. I think I said to myself, like, I'm just going to do this. And um, I knew that it was it would take a long time. It had already taken a long time. You know, I started, uh, I mean, I started scoring Nick's film in 2001, and this was 2010, you know? Um, so that's already nine years. And then I, but I, so I was like, you know what? I've been waiting a while. I'm just going to keep doing my thing. Um, uh, so yeah, I didn't have a, I don't know. I, <laughs> I I thought, I assumed that somehow I would get some work. And ultimately you did. I did. It was, it was interesting though. It was through friends actually. Mm-hmm. It was through um, a very close friend of mine who I met through other friends of mine in college, uh, Adam Leon, mm-hmm. uh, who had been friends with for, you know, you know, a, a decade already. Um, he was making a, uh, his first, feature debut, which was a movie called Give Me the Loot. And uh, 
I remember hearing from a friend that he was he had finished shooting it and was editing it. And um, I, I think it was my friend Jake, and he was like, have you talked to Adam about his movie? And I realized I hadn't. And I just reached out and I said, look, you know, no pressure. If you happen to need any music or anything at all, you know, just let me know. And Adam was like, actually, no, we, we need a composer. Uh, so I worked with Adam on Give Me the Loop. And I had already, I had worked with him before. Um, there was a short film that he co-directed with our other friend, Jack Riccobono, um, called Killer a few years before. So, you know, that was the thing. I was always scoring a lot of short films. That was just, I loved it. I thought it was it was awesome. Um, so okay. Give Me the Loop was the first indie feature and it got, it, uh, it you know, it was getting released. It went to Cannes. It won South by Southwest. So um, that was really the first kind of indie feature that I had that people may have seen. A serious credit. Yeah. So explain for me and people like me who don't know anything um, how the scoring process actually works because I feel like maybe it's a little bit different with how you and Barry work, but maybe in general you can help listeners understand where does it start? Do you ever come in with any preconceived music? Do you? How much of it is born of conversations with filmmakers? Maybe you can walk us through a little bit of that methodology. Absolutely. Um, it is, you know, there are many ways to score a film. And, um, and I think the biggest kind of takeaway is, you know, there, there are no rules. There's no right way or wrong way to score a movie. The key is a director has, has shot a film. And, you know, there's this whole film team that's putting this movie together, and it starts to be edited. And there's this question of, you know, do we have music? What music? Where does it go? How does that work? Um, I happen to have had the, uh, you know, I think the lucky sort of uh, opportunity to work early on many of these projects where, you know, on Moonlight, I actually met Barry before he had shot the movie. We we did talk about some early ideas. Um on Beale Street, it was the same thing where we started early. Adam McKay and I, we we do the same thing where we actually talk. I met Adam while he was shooting the Big Short, but I was I was actually able to send him ideas and play him some music, um, you know, before he started even putting the movie together. But the big picture thing is, it's a, uh, you know, it's an exploration. Um, the music, the way that the music works in a movie is going to be different for every composer and every director, and that's kind of what's beautiful about it. You know, there's no there's no one way to do it. Um, so for me, the way I approach it is you have these early conversations. Um, ideally, you read a script possibly or you, you, know, you get to hear from the director what, how they want the movie to feel. What, do they have any early ideas musically? You know, is it going to be sci-fi texture? Is it going to be strings? Is it going to, you know, even an early instinct, which, you know, those early ideas, there's no way to know if they're going to be right. You know, the whole process is this very kind of iterative, exploratory, experimental thing. I mean, there there may very well be composers who who work differently, for sure. I mean, you know, there's it's very personal approach. But I think for me, I learn what the movie wants as I go. You know, uh, like on on Beale Street, there were certain ideas that Barry would say to me. Like early on, he said he said he was imagining the sound of brass and horns. It's the first thing he said, and um, this was before he shot the movie. Uh, so I started experimenting with flugelhorns and French horns and cornet and trumpets, and I wrote some music, and I played it for him right when he was doing some early cuts of the movie. And what was interesting was he loved the music on its own, and then when we put it with the picture, it, it, was, it just wasn't quite right. It was missing something. It didn't feel like it was... There's something about music, I think, when it works in a film that it just feels like it's almost like inside the movie. It's just in it. 
it's connected. It's in the fabric of the movie. And there's and when a cue doesn't quite work, you know, when you take a piece of music and it just doesn't quite work, it feels like it's like sitting on top of the movie. Mm-hmm. It just doesn't. And I don't. I have no idea what why. I don't know what that is. It is really mysterious. But it's you have alchemical. To, yeah, it's alchemical. Yeah. But you have to respect it. Mm-hmm. You know, there's something. And so, so much of this process is being kind of humble with your ideas because it's about the movie. You know, we want the movie to be the best it can be. I want the feeling of the movie to be what the director is is hoping their movie could feel like. So until we get there, you know, I'm not done. And I'm not happy until we're at that moment. Um, so, for example, with Beale Street, we discovered that it was strings, and in particular it was the sound of cellos that represented something of this feeling of love that's in Beale Street. Because Beale Street's about love and it's about injustice. And as regards love, it deals with so many kinds of love. There's there's an almost sense of divine, unconditional love in the film. There's romantic love. There's erotic love. There's the love that parents have for their children. Um, there's a feeling of friendship and brotherly love. And the strings, the way that we would evolve the strings through the film was, was all... All to that end, you know, it, it was somehow those cellos felt like love. And then that opened a door of saying, well, what if I took this, the music I wrote for brass, what if I played that on cellos? And that would open a door. And then we'd say, well, actually, what if I then mix some brass back in with these cellos? And, you know, we start just uncovering things and every scene is different. So it's a very, you know, I don't want that to sound overly complicated. It's really just a journey. Like we're, you know, Barry and 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 Joy and Nat, his editors, are working together. They're trying things out with the film. They're seeing how the film's going to live as one piece. And I'm doing the same thing where I'm looking at different sequences and I'm trying things out. And we're having these conversations where Barry will come to my studio in New York and we'll sit in the room for days on end and watch the movie and order Shake Shack and just like try stuff out. And it's really fun because we don't we don't know. We really don't. And yet when you find that thing that works, it is, it's it's a feeling unlike anything else. And I think those are those moments that you um that you're really sort of striving for, those moments where you discover you write something and then the way that it connects is sort of inexplicable. And I really do think that's that's one of the things that I'm always seeking is those those kind of special moments where on a very personal level, you know, you you've learned something, you've emotionally kind of discovered something and you've done it together you know it's not just me it's not me by myself doing that it's me and Barry we're sitting there together and we're and we're both feeling something and it's a really joyful kind of uh you know moment when that happens like Barry, Barry and I always talk about we re- remember those moments you know like we were talking about that piece middle of the world like I remember when I sort of connected something there with Barry I, I did it in front of him you know I was like writing this with him there and uh you know those moments we I don't think we'll ever forget. Is it ever not that way? Because mm-hmm. even as we're talking, this is the second time we've spoken, and yeah. you've already made two references to different physicists in our conversations, <laughs> one on mic and one off. Was, <laughs> and you're obviously very— <laughs> I apologize. I, no, I no, <laughs> it's, it's fascinating. But you're, you're a brilliant person, and also you have this background in hip-hop too, which is this sort, sort of producerial style of music yeah. where— you kind of have signature sounds and you have moves and maybe you have sort of an, an archive of things you can go to. And I'm wondering if you have like a bag of tricks, for lack of a better phrase, that you know, like, I'm going into a project. I know I've always wanted to do something like this. I know that I've, you know, I have an idea for X. Do you uh, approach certain projects that way too? That's an awesome question because 
I wrote so much music when I was in college and and in the you know years after that. And I think one of the things that happens is there are certain we all have certain things that we like, you know, like especially musicians, I think, you know, with their there are certain chords that move you a certain way. There are certain shapes of melodies that just mean something to you. You know, I mean, I think music does mean something to so many people. And I think for me, you know, as a composer, there are there are sort of things that you gravitate towards, but I would actually say that I often try to go away from those things because it's almost easy to fall into, oh, you know, I I, I like that move. And then, you you know, you find yourself doing it and you're like, no, I've done that. Like, I, I don't want to do that again. Mm-hmm. Or I don't want to do that right now, you know? Or, or is there a new way to think about that, you know? Um, I mean, there are certain chord progressions that mean something to me in some way. And I think if I ever you know, go in a certain direction. I want to always keep it kind of new, uh, if that makes sense. And I think actually even down to playing the piano where um, piano is such a physical thing. It's this, you know, your, your your body learns the piano as much or maybe even more than your mind does sometimes. You know what I mean? I feel like when I sit at the piano, my body just sort of goes to certain places. And because of that, I think if I'm writing, I don't always write at the piano. I often write at the computer or, you know, when I'm traveling, I'll just write with, you know, pencil and paper. But at the piano, there are certain things you go towards. And I will often try to play in keys that are not the the usual keys because your hands are sort of almost forced to go to places they don't usually go. And you find stuff that you wouldn't otherwise. Like if I if I'm going to D minor or C or A, like I'm going to go to similar stuff that I would. But if I'm like, you know what? Let's be an F sharp minor. Let's be an E flat minor. Let's be somewhere like that. I don't know. You're going to find, for me, I would find some other stuff there just because my hands are sort of like, oh, where are we? (laughs) I'm interested in the language that you and filmmakers have before you start writing or even while while you're in the act of writing. Is it, because I think people imagine that if you're working with Adam on Vice, is it like, magisterial but doomed you know like what are the do you have like a a checklist of of words that you're identifying and then you're applying the sort of feelings and instruments and notes that you need to write to fit those words there is a sort of mapping that starts to happen and i think the the key thing for me is always talking to directors about emotions that's that's my focus. Even even among musicians, I think talking about musical terminology doesn't always help you. You know, if I'm talking to if I'm talking to an orchestra as we're recording, um, you know, saying I need more of a crescendo here as we're going into you know G minor, like sure, that's very specific. But I might actually say, here's what's happening in the scene. Here's actually how I want you to feel. Like this is a moment of doom or whatever. You know, that the the drama or the storytelling of that I think is much more important. And for for scoring and for working with directors, it really is about that. You know, we're saying, A, what's happening in the scene? How do you want to feel? We can explore that emotion. Like, what is is this a sad moment? Or there's that, the other question of like, what are we actually trying to say? Because the music is 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 not always supposed to enhance what you're seeing. The music oftentimes is supposed to tell you something you're not seeing. You're gonna you, know, you want to hear something else. Um, it could be that you're seeing a moment of doom, but you're actually supposed to be hearing where we're going, which is love or uh, another character or something else happening. And I think those are the things I really love where the music kind of plays its own 
story, and it's actually the interaction of those two stories that you that opens up this this other thing. Because sometimes, you know, when you're, you know, there's that metaphor of like a hat on a hat. Like, you know, you don't need a hat on a hat. There are times amplifying something, of course, absolutely. You know, there are times action needs to be amplified. Um, but I'm always fascinated when it's, you know, you're seeing X and you're hearing Y. It's really interesting. I'm curious, you know, you have a very sophisticated understanding of the films that you work on, perhaps more so than some of your peers. You can agree or disagree about that. Um, I'm interested in the way that you choose projects because there seems to be something progressive and forward-thinking about the films that you work on. And I'm wondering how important it is that you believe in the story and believe in the ideas of the filmmaker to do something or, and maybe things will change in the future if you'd be willing to work on something that is sort of more of a an intellectual challenge, but not necessarily something you feel aligned with. I think that music is a very, um, you know, music's very spe- special to me and um, connecting emotions and sharing those emotions, I think is very, you know, has a meaning in a way. And I do, I do really try to choose projects that I think have a, at least to me, a deeper significance um, where I feel I can connect to it. If I, you know, if I don't feel, you know, A, having a director, an amazing director is something that, you know, I mean, I would go to the ends of the earth for Barry Jenkins or Adam McKay. So, um, you know, whatever Barry wants to work on, I would love to do. <laughs> so that's already a simple answer there. But um, but I think in a big picture sense, you know, there's some, I think films are a way of uh, disseminating not just ideas, but feelings about ideas. And oftentimes it can be a very powerful thing where people really understand things through, I think through, you know, people understand things through their gut in a way, through their feelings. That's maybe a deeper kind of understanding than, you know, if we're just talking about ideas, you can agree or disagree. But when you feel those ideas, it's a whole other kind of state. And I think that, you know, if I can work on a film that that I believe in um, and I can be a part of creating a sort of sense of emotion around certain, you know, ideas that I believe in, I think that, for me, that's a very, that can be a very poignant experience. This is a Ringer podcast, so I'm legally obligated to ask you about Succession. Um, <laughs> that's our, that's yes. our favorite show here. Respect. Um, you wrote the theme, obviously, and, and all of the music in, in the show. Yes. Is that right? All the, yeah. uh, just can you talk a little bit about the construction of the theme, which is a bit of a theme song in this in these offices? Absolutely. Um, by the way, thank you. Sure. Yeah. Of course. <laughs> no, I love working on Succession. I um, uh, when I I first talked to Adam about it quite a few years ago, um, and there was a period of time where I worked with Adam and Jesse Armstrong, creator of the show, showrunner, um, and we met up and uh, I played some early ideas and. It really was kind of what we were talking about before, where there were these early experiences. This was while they were shooting the pilot, um, where I invited. Uh, actually, Jesse came over to my studio in New York, and I was just playing him some ideas. You know, just again, who knows where these things come from? But I, I remember saying to him, like, I think it'd be cool if there were like weird, like Zen bell sounds. And he was like, Great. <laughs> and then I was like, You know, Waystar Royco, they have sort of a theme. I want to like write that theme, and then I want to you know, think about ways of weaving things together. And then I played him a couple ideas that had this kind of mixture of a huge hip-hop beat. And, you know, I guess I would I would characterize it as sort of like a insane out-of-tune piano. Mm-hmm. That'd be, you know, a sort of almost circus-like piano. And I think there was something sort of uh, dark, but it was also kind of absurd at the same time. And 
for me, that sort of opened the door. And Jesse was into it, right? I mean, he was like, I like this. <laughs> he's like, right away. He's How like, could you not? Yeah. Yeah. You know, he was, he was feeling it right away. And, and that was exciting because he was so open to me, to, you know, to me trying stuff. And Adam was the same way. And um, when I was working on, uh, on Vice and Beale Street, I was actually living at McKay's uh, house with the McKay's in their pool house. Oh, wow. So I would— Over here know, in L.A. Over here, yeah. exactly. And, um, you know, I, I lived with uh, the McKay's for the first time on the Big Short mm-hmm. uh, that summer. So, so you're really in the family. I mean, I love the McKay's. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love the McKay's. And, uh, but it's great because we, we had the chance to talk about a lot of things, and I could play Adam ideas and show him things. Um, I mean, we, you know— Adam Adam loves working on these projects, and and I do too. So I mean, we really do immerse ourselves full time. Like we are constantly working on this stuff. Um, but yeah, I think the Succession sound evolved from those early conversations where I felt that I wanted there to be something classical, especially with some of the piano motifs. Uh, and for me, something very important with any project is how do we evolve it, because I think that's actually the for me, that's the more interesting journey than anything else is if I come up with an idea that feels like it's connected to a project somehow, how, where does it go? You know, I don't want always 10 ideas. That's, that's not going to connect things. What if I have a few ideas, but those ideas themselves are going to shapeshift over the course of a project and we are going to feel that change or we're going to learn something and how it's changing. That to me is something really interesting, like the development of those ideas. So with Succession, you know, I started with some of the piano ideas, then strings, then weird woodwinds, then, you know, as we go, guitars and banjos. And, you know, I mean, it was just this constant kind of fun. And, um, yeah, Adam and Jesse were just always encouraging. So, you know, that that is the dream where you have collaborators who uh, – and look, not everything always works. I mean, there's always, you know, there's always times where they're like, you know what, I don't know if we, you know. Sure, of course. Um, I think one of the biggest uh, learning experiences for me was that, you know, television is different from movies because there's so much more real estate. I mean, you have 10 hours of material versus, let's say, two hours on a movie. You know, what do you do with all that space? And the bigger question was, you know, where do you where do you put music? Um, I didn't want to compete with the tone in certain places, you know, if something's supposed to be funny, how do we explore that? And and Succession really was a fascinating tonal landscape where it is both very serious and dark at times, but it's also, you know, very absurdly funny. I mean, yeah. it, it's both of those things. And for me, I think the answer was the music always has to be serious. Nicola, just a couple more questions for sure, you. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you were working on season two, I presume. Yeah. yeah. Um, that's exciting. Just, just started right now. Uh is there a score recently that you heard that you're jealous of? I would say, I mean, there are scores that I think, you know, I'm impressed with, you know, mm-hmm. and I think it's, I think very much for me, you know, it's not, there's no, you know, there's no emotion or competition because for me, like everyone, you know, when someone scores a movie, it's, it, it is that kind of personal expression. So, um, you know, definitely not a jealousy thing in any way. I was very impressed with Anna Meredith's score for eighth grade. I thought that was amazing. Yeah, what about it to you? Uh, that was unique. That was really unique. And yeah. I thought that, you know, for me, a good score is something that feels like it's almost like bringing out the soul of a film. And it was so woven into it, th- that universe that I I actually try to do that thing when I'm watching movies sometimes where I'm like, let me imagine that score not there. Mm. And I couldn't. I couldn't imagine, like, some other score. Um, and so I think that's always kind of the testament where it, if a score— feels like inevitable 
It feels like there was no other choice there, you know? And so that was one where, you know, I couldn't imagine the movie without that. And I love the movie. That's very good. Is there any part of you that wants to go back to um, concert pianist? Is there any, do you have any pangs of, (laughs) should I be a more forward-facing performer? I've gotten, through the work I've been doing, I've gotten the opportunity to play more. I know that. Um, That's why I asked. And I love love playing. I love playing. Um, I record, you know, Almost all the piano that I uh, that's in projects I will play. Um, for example, except if it's orchestral and if I'm conducting, then I won't play. Okay. Um, so, like in Vice, the solo piano is me. The piano that you would hear in an orchestra is not me. That's a, a wonderful pianist named Dave Hartley in London. Nick, I end every episode of this show by asking filmmakers what's the last great thing that they have seen. So you are technically a filmmaker. What is the last great thing that you have seen? That's a good question. You know, honestly, I. Um, I've watched it a few times, but I I love Roma. Mm. I thought it was amazing. Not the first person to say that. I thought it was amazing. Uh, and I, no joke today, was able to meet Alfonso Cuaron, and I was just sort of stammering when I met him. I was like, <laughs> I, I, I think I said something like, I think about children of men every day. Uh, <laughs> he was like, he's like, oh, you know. I mean, I was, you know, I feel like the level of my incoherence is 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 it's proportional to my uh, my my feeling for his film. So uh, so yeah, I would say Roma, just because to me it felt like this world. It felt like it, it was it was more than a movie in a way. I felt like I was teleported somewhere and just existing there, watching this this story. Nick, that's what your music does for people. So thanks for doing this. Good luck at the Oscars. Thank you. 